With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there, and uh, welcome to today's program, Collaborative Problem Solving at School. Um, Glad that you are able to join in, whether live or by listening to the recorded versions. We do this every week at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, with the goal of helping people understand challenging kids better and apply the collaborative problem-solving approach. And, of course, that's the mission of Lives in the Balance, the nonprofit organization that I founded. Uh, That's what Lives in the Balance is all about, trying to help people understand kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges better and implement collaborative problem solving so as to help them better than we often do now. So these are your 45 minutes. As always, if you're working with a student who's not responding very well to Plan B or running into trouble using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems or having difficulty getting your colleagues at school to buy in, This is your opportunity to call in, comment, ask questions, get the support you need, or just listen to what's going on with others who are using the collaborative problem-solving approach. If you want to call in, and um, boy, we need to start getting some people calling in on this uh, educator's program. The uh, phone lines tend to be quite uh, busy during the parent program that I do every Tuesday at noon, but... um, not getting a whole bunch of calls on the uh, educators program this year. I'm not exactly sure why. I know that lots of folks are listening because they tell me so. But um, the number, which would probably help, 646-727-2691. 646-727-2691. And you know, what a lot of people do is they don't call in. They email me questions, which is perfectly fine. Um So if you're hesitant to call in, you can always send me a question electronically through the contact form on the Lives in the Balance website, and that, of course, is www.livesinthebalance.org. So um, how is it going out there? Thanksgiving is coming up. I'm sure that everybody is looking forward to uh, four days 
um, to not be having to deal with uh, behaviorally challenging kids at school. Um, you know, I've been in a meaningful number of schools lately, and things do seem to be going better for challenging kids in schools, but only if people uh, apply some very basic ingredients. Um, first ingredient, we got to work together. So this the effort is not uh, scattered, willy-nilly, need a cohesive effort, um, beginning with um, putting our heads together to see a student with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges through shared lenses, the lenses of lagging skills so that we know what's getting in his or her way, and unsolved problems so that we know what we're working on. That's what the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is for, helping us uh, see the student through uh, common shared lenses and helping us know what it is that we want to start working on uh, with that student so as to start solving the problems that are setting in motion that student's challenging episodes. Um, that's what also, though, helps people come around to the fact that uh, when, when, when we engage school staff in a discussion about a student's lagging skills, then, as I've been saying lately, wow moments occur, as in, wow, this kid really is lacking a lot of skills, and wow, um, no wonder what we've been doing hadn't been working, and wow, uh, no wonder... Um, things haven't been getting better, and no wonder Plan A is setting in motion this student's most challenging episodes. Um, and wow, I'm kind of feeling bad about how I've been interacting with this kid. Uh, having people get together as a group, talking about the adults here, to uh, come to see a difficult student through the prism of lagging skills and helping those adults put their heads together so as to decide what unsolved problems are reliably and predictably setting in motion a student's challenging episodes helps uh, organize the effort and helps people work together. And I can't think of any population of kids that needs us to work together better or more than students with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges. Boy, do they need us to work together, and boy, do they need us to um, be on the same page, not only in terms of the lenses we're wearing, and that's crucial, but also in terms of organizing the effort, because um, what commonly happens is uh, if we haven't put our heads together on unsolved problems and we haven't put our heads together with the Plan B flow chart uh, as our record-keeping guide related to what it is that we're working on right now and what it is that we're not working on right now, then the effort is organized, is not organized, and each individual person in the school gets to decide on their own what's important, what's not, what they're going to work on, what they're not going to work on. That haphazard effort won't get the job done, not not with these kids, because helping kids with behavioral challenges is going to require continuity and being proactive. Um, 
we got to put our heads together first. We got to decide what we're working on and what we're not working on. We got to decide who is going to take primary responsibility for doing Plan B with a challenging student on a particular unsolved problem. Um, otherwise, either everybody will or nobody will. And if we don't prioritize, we're not exactly sure what we're working on. The kid's not exactly sure what we're working on. And everybody's working on something different. And that isn't going to get the job done. So that's the first ingredient. Use the ALSUP, the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems, as a discussion and information gathering guide so as to ensure that the people who are working with a particular student are wearing shared lenses and so that we know what we're working on, what specific unsolved problems need to be solved so that this student isn't exhibiting challenging episodes anymore, and then deciding what we're working on, what we're not working on, and who's working on what with the student. All of this proactive the vast majority of interventions in schools that take place with challenging kids occur either in the heat of the moment or immediately thereafter. And it's very hard to be proactive if we aren't um, organizing the effort with the ALSUP as our discussion guide. Next ingredients, well, the next ingredients are now we've got to get good at Plan B. And many of the questions that I received that I'm going to be talking about this week, um, I'm actually relatively current on questions at the moment, so we're going to be answering questions that I've received uh, this week, um, are mostly questions related to doing Plan B. But I must say, the thing I run into the most, aside from people trying to get good at Plan B that's getting in the way of us helping our challenging kids in our schools, is the fact that um, the effort isn't proactive, the effort isn't organized, and the left hand often doesn't know what the right hand is doing. The left hand's got to know what the right hand is doing. So let's, let's turn our attention to some emails here. Here's one. Um, hi, Dr. Green. Like many psychologists, I am trained to use the lenses of CBT, that's Cognitive Behavior Therapy, PCIT, I think that's Parent-Child Interaction Therapy, and Behaviorism in understanding and treating children with difficult behaviors. I love my job and honestly have felt confident in using most of the methods I was trained in and have generally been pleased with the results. However, I am open-minded and am giving serious thought to what I'm learning about collaborative problem-solving. My question is, well, number one, good for you. Um, that's no small achievement right there um, because um, being open-minded um, is often an, an important hurdle for people, um, either because of the way they were trained or because of how they raise their own children. Uh, most folks believe that their training and their the way they raised their own kids was largely spot on, most folks, not all. And so being open-minded to the possibility that um, challenging kids aren't who we thought they were and that other interventions, in other words, it's not that they're not motivated, they're lacking crucial cognitive skills, 
and that because of that, there are other interventions that might serve them better than the standard reward and punishment approach. That takes some open-mindedness. It takes courage, bravery, to take a close look at what you're doing and um, be open to the possibility of changing it. So here's the question. Dr. Green, do you recommend CPS for all kids, even the relatively easy ones who have occasional developmentally appropriate difficult moments? And if so, at what age does it start? I'm expecting you to say that at the age that the child can communicate fairly well. If so, is there any variant of CPS you would recommend for toddlers? Or is it appropriate to only utilize plans A and C for the first two years or so? Great questions. Let's take them in order. Do I recommend collaborative problem solving for all kids? Uh, absolutely. Uh, e even the relatively easy ones who have occasionally developmentally appropriate difficult moments. Yes, difficult moments are developmentally appropriate, but even when a difficult moment is developmentally appropriate, the difficult moment tells us that this relatively easy child has an unsolved problem that he's apparently having difficulty solving on his own. And not only that, an unsolved problem that we would very much like to hear more about so that we can understand it better. You know, relatively easy kids who have occasional developmentally appropriate difficult moments still have unsolved problems, uh, and often they have the skills to solve those unsolved problems. And so... Um, Sometimes we don't even know that an unsolved problem has showed up on their radar screen because they didn't tell us and they had the skills to handle it on their own. So when an unsolved problem breaks through that, that's a sign that the kid is letting us know, this is one I'm having difficulty solving. Or this is a way that you, the adult, are responding to something that uh, isn't okay with me. It's not working for me. My concerns are being blown off the table, or you are unilaterally imposing solutions on me. Um, that even happens with relatively easy ones. Um, I find that while relatively easy ones can um, handle plan A, they don't like it. They don't see the point. They just have the skills to deal with it when it happens, but do relatively easy kids who have developmentally appropriate difficult moments have problems that they're having difficulty solving? Absolutely. How do we know that? They are having a developmentally, developmentally appropriate difficult moment. Do they need our help? Well, I suppose if they're having a developmentally appropriate difficult moment, they do have our, need our help, uh, even if their difficult moment is developmentally appropriate. We all have difficult moments. All of us have moments at which we need someone lending a helping hand to help us figure out what our concern is on that unsolved problem, what's getting in our way, what's troubling us. Um, helping us see what the other person's perspective is and helping us work toward a solution that works for both of us. I, I don't know any human beings that I've come across um, even the relatively easy ones who didn't need that sometimes. Now, here's the good news. If you use Plan B with that uh, relatively easy kid, 
you've um, maybe uh, at the very least helped him clarify his concerns. Maybe something was troubling him that he didn't even know about. I have that experience with my own children all the time. Um, Both relatively easy. Both come across unsolved problems that they're having difficulty solving, and both benefit enormously from having their concerns clarified in the empathy step. Enormously. Because sometimes they're not even sure what it is that's troubling them. Both also then benefit enormously from um, being helped to understand the concerns of the other party, the, the other point of view, enormously. And they benefit enormously by brainstorming solutions because there are solutions that they may not have thought of yet. Along the way, they may actually learn how to solve problems even better. Uh, I do plan B with regular old kids. I do plan B with challenging kids. They all need our help. The challenging ones need it a little bit worse than the relatively easy ones who have occasional developmentally appropriate difficult moments. On to the next question, and if so, at what age does it start? Well, as you may have heard me say on this uh, program before, trying to understand what's getting in the way for a kid and trying to be responsive to, to it starts the minute a kid is born. Now, we don't expect words from newborns. We expect other ways that they let us know that something's the matter or something's getting in their way. I suspect it's almost always crying, but, you know, there's crying and there's crying. But when an infant is crying... The job of the adult is to figure out what's getting in the infant's way, try to be responsive to it, and try to solve it. Now, you you may not have a true collaborator at that point. You you can't necessarily do the, well, you can't do the linguistic give and take involved in uh, traditional plan B, as I describe it with uh, kids who are, able to participate in Plan B, but I must say this, the infant is typically giving us information about whether our solution solved the problem. And the infant is giving us information uh, about whether our solution didn't solve the problem. And if it didn't solve the problem, well, it's time to do some more drilling. And, of course, we still have an infant that isn't able to use words, but we still got to figure it out. Um, we do this all the time. Uh, You know, if an infant is um, out for a winter stroll in the baby carriage and the infant starts to cry, there are multiple potential theories. Uh, Notice I mentioned winter day. Too cold. All right, well, you know, we'll be responsive. The infant is crying. We're going to assume that it's too cold, so we will add another blanket. Uh, We either got that right or we didn't. That solution was either mutually satisfactory or it wasn't. And then the infant is going to give us information about that. If the infant stops crying, we're probably good to go until he starts crying about something else. But if the infant doesn't stop crying, the infant cries harder, well, then too hot is a potential uh, 
concern or perspective on the part of the infant. Uh, hungry is a concern or perspective on the part of the infant. The list is fairly endless, but our goal is to see if we can figure out what's getting in the infant's way and, and then, quite frankly, learn something from it. Um, get to know your infant. Get to know your child. Um, one of the things about my daughter that was fascinating early in childhood, I, she, she didn't like bulky clothes. So I would pick her up from preschool in the morning and um, or in the afternoon, whenever it was. I can't quite remember at the moment, uh, maybe midday. And um, immediately uh, take off her jacket, take off her snow pants. Yes, we're in a cold environment up here in Boston. Um, take off her boots and then put her in the car. Um, because I knew that um, being in the car all bulked up would set the stage for an unsolved problem. Um, and that did the trick. Mutually satisfactory for me, the car was heated. Uh, mutually satisfactory for her teachers who would look at me with knowing glances and say, um, uh, sensory issues, eh? Mutually satisfactory for my daughter, who by then was using words, but quite frankly wasn't able to articulate what was the matter with the bulky clothes at that age. At what age would I start being collaborative with a child? The one-minute mark. Now here, I'm going to continue with this email. It's a great email. I am expecting you to say at the age that the child can communicate fairly well. Nope. Too late. I mean, that's a good age to start. Any age is a good age to start if you haven't started yet. But um, is there any variant of CPS you would recommend for toddlers? Or is it appropriate to only utilize plans A and C for the first two years or so? Well, I jumped the gun on those questions. Nope. I would recommend uh, collaborative problem solving for toddlers. Whether they are able to participate formally in Plan B or not um, doesn't mean we can't be collaborative. We can be collaborative. We can, with a toddler, with a one-minute-old infant, with a six-year-old, take the information that the child is able to provide us and try to solve problems that way. So no, this is this is why I'm often asked the question, can you do collaborative problem solving with kids who are impaired linguistically or in communication skills? And the answer is the same, because even though we don't expect um, words from a minute-old infant or from a one-year-old uh, child, they are communicating. Grunting is communicating. Growling is communicating. Crying is communicating. Pitching a fit is communicating. Throwing a tantrum is communicating. As many of you have heard me say many times before, all a tantrum tells us is that a kid has an unsolved problem that he's having difficulty solving on his own and that he needs our help to solve whether he's uh, a minute old or a year old or 10 years old, he needs our help. And his challenging behavior is letting us know that. I wouldn't only utilize plans A and C for the first two years. I would 
do as much Plan B as possible to the degree that a child was able to participate, but now you know that the child doesn't need words to participate. He's giving us information all the time and giving us signals about whether our efforts to solve problems have been successful or not full-time. Next question. Uh, this is from a different emailer. Um, I'm wondering what to do. I love this is a great question. I'm wondering what to do during the empathy step of Plan B when the child does not seem to think there is a concern or problem that needs to be addressed. The unsolved problem we come to was here, here's the unsolved problem we were working on: getting started and completing class assignments, and number two, talking at appropriate times. The student does not seem to think that either of these is a problem and continually made excuses for why his behaviors were appropriate. I'm wondering where to go from here. I hope this provides enough information to get some feedback. Well, first of all, uh, emailer, you are welcome to call in if I don't uh, answer your question satisfactorily. But believe it or not, even in those uh, four or five sentences, there's some crucial information. Um, First of all, getting started and completing class assignments, believe it or not, is too vague. If I wanted a child, if, if I if I wanted a uh, unsolved problem that would help a child actually sink his teeth in, I would want to name a specific class assignment or uh, that a child was having difficulty in completing. Otherwise, I run the risk of a child not talking to me because he wasn't sure what I was asking about in the first place. So. In other words, the empathy step is the litmus test for whether we're being specific enough, the, the beginning of the empathy step. And here's what the beginning of the empathy step would sound like if we um, weren't specific enough. I've noticed that you're having trouble started and completing class assignments. What's up? Many kids. Now, here's the demand that's now been placed on this kid. He now needs to sort through all of the class assignments that he might be having difficulty getting started on and completing. He then needs to think about which one you might be referring to. He then needs to think about what's difficult about getting started and completing each assignment, given that it could be something different on each. And then having sorted all of that through, he needs to respond intelligently to our initial inquiry. I want to be specific. I've noticed that you're having trouble started in completing writing assignments in social studies. What's up? Whatever answer I get to that much more specific unsolved problem um, might well inform other uh, assignments, but at least I've gotten the kids started talking on a much more specific unsolved problem. But secondly, um, even if it doesn't inform other similar class assignments, at least I've got the kid talking and I can ask him questions about how this class assignment is different from other ones, and I might name another specific one there, that he's also having trouble with. So that's, I guess that's point number one on, on this question is let's be more specific about what the unsolved problem is by giving the kid a specific example of that unsolved problem that he can really sink his teeth into. I'd rather start narrow most of the time and then broaden it out rather than start broad and then try to narrow it, especially if a kid hasn't talked to us. And then the second one is talking at appropriate times. I'd want to add a where or when to that. Um, interesting thing is the rest of the email suggests that our definition of appropriate times 
and the student's definition of appropriate times are not the same. In which case, if we start plan B, the empathy step, by saying, I've noticed, and this is way too vague, that you're talking at inappropriate times, what's up? Well, not only is it too vague, but he might, well, we might interpret his subsequent response as a sign that he doesn't think that there's a problem and that he's making excuses for why his behavior was appropriate. We may not have the same definition of appropriate, which means I'd want to reword that one. I'd want to word that one as I've noticed that sometimes you talk, and now I've got to be specific, during science when the rest of the class is working quietly, like on your lab experiment. I'm completely making this up, obviously, because I don't even know how old this kid is, but what's up? Now I've gotten rid of the word appropriate, which is vague all by itself, um, and I'm referring to a specific incident in which a student was talking and we thought he shouldn't be, and we are open to the possibility, and I have no idea if this is what it is, but we're open to the possibility that his definition of appropriate and ours are different. And then maybe we wouldn't think that he believed that there wasn't a problem, and we wouldn't think he was making excuses for why his behaviors were appropriate. He might not be making excuses. He might be giving you his true concern or perspective. Uh, and it could sound like this. Well, I just needed help understanding something, and you told us not to talk to you. So I didn't know who to talk to, so I asked my classmate. I, I don't know what he's going to say. I just know that we need to be much more specific about what the unsolved problem is that we're inquiring with the student about. And, geez, um, I'm having trouble thinking of any response that the student might make that I would consider making excuses. Um Oftentimes when people tell me a kid is making excuses for his behavior, uh, he wasn't making excuses at all. He was actually giving you his concern or perspective. So actually, I'd love to hear from this emailer. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't ever um, give the names of emailers on this program, but uh, if you're listening now, uh, and I think you're probably not, or if you listen to the archive of this program, do send me another email and uh, or call into next week's program and, and give us a little bit more detail. Um, by the way, even when a kid tells us he doesn't think something is a problem, even that's the beginning of his concern or perspective. That's not a stopper. That's not a showstopper. That's an indication that we just need to start drilling Here's what that might sound like. I've noticed that um, you were talking a lot during our science lab when everybody was working independently. Um, what's up? Now, let's say he responds with, um, I, I don't have a problem talking with people during science lab. I didn't understand the assignment. 
well, there it is, the beginning of his concern or perspective. Uh, he may not appreciate that that's a problem for you, but that's what the define the problem step is. But in the meantime, we want as much information from him as we can possibly get. But do email or call uh, into the next program if I didn't answer that question well enough. We'll probably have time for one more question here, 13 minutes remaining in the program. And here it is, Dr. Green, following, uh, I've attempted to implement Plan B with a grade 9 student who poses several behavioral academic issues in three of his four classes. I have met with the teachers to determine his lagging skills. Do you recommend I conduct one meeting with the student and his three concerned teachers or three separate meetings? I'm concerned about creating an anxious or intimidating situation for the student. Great question. Well, first of all, um, I'm, I'm glad that you determined the student's lagging skills, and I'm hoping that everybody is viewing the student through those lenses at this point. We still have one other um, piece of information to gather, both from the student and from his teachers, um, before I can help you decide how many meetings you need to have to start solving problems, and that is we need to start um, identifying highly specific unsolved problems as well. And I would recommend that you do that in two ways. I would recommend that you meet with the student separately and ask him things like, what are you getting in trouble for? What are people bugging you about, etc.? Um, and you'll get, in many students, you'll get quite the list of unsolved problems from them when you ask those questions. But I would also reconvene the people who met to talk about the students' lagging skills and have them put their heads together on unsolved problems as well. Because what we're trying to do here is come up with a list of all of the unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion challenging episodes for that student. We want to get that information from him and we want to get that, student, uh, that information from the people who are working with that student. Then we're deciding... Actually, if this is a grade nine student, I might want the student's input on this as well. Um, no, no, no uh, great harm in including a grade nine student in the, in the next decision, which is which two or three of these unsolved problems should we start working on first? Which two or three? Then, and by the way, those unsolved problems are highly specific. Then we're in a position to decide. Um, Who's meeting with whom? It could be that two of the three unsolved problems are with the same teacher, in which case I would probably just do plan B, uh, one problem at a time with that teacher and save a third meeting for the third. I, I appreciate your desire not to create an anxious or intimidating situation for the student, and that's always an important consideration when you're doing plan B, and that is to at the very least check in with the student about um, the conditions under which the student might feel most comfortable talking about these unsolved problems and starting to make some headway on solving them. I've worked with some kids who, when I said to them, listen, all of your teachers would love to be in on the discussion, even though the unsolved problems only affect you, your life with two of the teachers, at least the ones that we're starting with. Um, do you mind if everybody sits in? And then um, it's sort of the student's call on what's comfortable. Um, 
And then there are some students that you're just thinking, you know what, we don't need everybody sitting in there. This this unsolved problem mostly involves one teacher. Um, let's do plan B with that one teacher and that student. So that's how I would go about making the decision. The, you know, the, the premium is on what's it going to take to help this student participate in plan B? What are those conditions? And those are the... Uh, primary considerations for deciding who's going to be in the room. Good for you, though, for not wanting... Good for you for wanting to create an environment that is conducive to Plan B. You can, you can see how important it is here to organize the effort. I mean, you've got a student who... And I know nothing about this student, but I, I can talk in generalities here. You've got a student who's had a fair amount of Plan A in his life, I'm assuming. That's why the unsolved problems that have perhaps been plaguing this student for a very long time are still in the unsolved pile. We've got lots of adults with good intentions. We've got some adults who don't understand that challenging kids are lacking crucial cognitive skills yet. Boy, there's a lot that goes into doing collaborative problem solving in a building, let alone the fact that it takes a while to get good at plan B. This is hard. And I have such tremendous admiration for the many, many people out there who are actually doing it and sticking with it um, and getting through all the hard stuff. So much of the hard stuff is logistical, and, and that's that's the hard part, is that, yes, wanting people to do Plan B is hard enough, but schools, school schedule, the way we structure things, schools aren't really designed in a way not to schedule, not the number of teachers a kid has, almost nothing. Schools aren't really designed, structured in a way that helps us give the help to kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges that they so badly need. So we're not just dealing with the fact that plan B is hard to do. Now, that's one of the hard parts, but we're also dealing with the fact that the building isn't structured this way. The kid often has multiple teachers. We are busy as all get out. This is why I've been recommending the uh, 15 minutes a day of problem-solving time in the schools in which I consult and any other school, quite frankly, 15 minutes a day of problem-solving time so as to build into the classroom structure. I'm talking every classroom, every classroom teacher, 15 minutes a day of problem-solving time. Now, that, that's more appropriate at the elementary level. And in the middle and high school level, often we have teams, and they are carving out 15 minutes a day in a way that is a little bit more logistically interesting, but still often doing it. 15 minutes a day to structure time to solve problems 
with the kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges in our buildings who need our help so desperately. 15 minutes a day. Now do the math. I might have done the math on this program before. Let's do the math. That's uh, 15 minutes a day, an hour and a quarter a week. Five hours a month. You can you can hear my wheels spinning here. Math is not my strong suit. 45 hours over the nine months of the school year. Can we get a lot of problems solved in 45 hours over the course of a school year? You bet we can. Does it end up saving us time? You bet it does. Do we eventually start solving problems even with the, and I'm going back to one of my uh, other emails from today. I promise I'm not making fun. I'm just using the language. Do we start doing collaborative problem solving with the relatively easy kids who have occasional developmentally appropriate difficult moments? You bet we do. Who would I start with? I'd start with the kids with uh, social, emotional, and behavioral challenges and get them looking a little better. And then I'd be doing collaborative problem solving 15 minutes a day with individual students across the course of the school year. As I've been saying in my talks lately, um, teachers have always been problem solvers. This was an important theme from last week's program. Teachers are problem solvers, always have been. What a pity. High-stakes testing and keeping up with a foreign country has taken us away from the problem-solving that educators have always been. We do have 15 minutes a day in our classrooms to be solving problems with students. We do. We can carve it out. They need us to carve it out, and that helps us get back to what educators have always been, problem-solvers, and not just academic problem-solvers problem solvers, so many opportunities that come up over the course of a school day and a school year to help students learn more about how to get along, solve problems together, express their concerns appropriately, do it in a way that's realistic and mutually satisfactory. So many opportunities, so little time, We need to make the time, 15 minutes a day. As I said, the kids with social, emotional, and behavioral challenges need it, and so do the other ones. So we're not making any big sacrifice by doing collaborative problem solving with the ones with behavioral challenges. They all need it. I think that's going to do it for today. We've covered quite a bit of territory today. I want to thank you for listening in, as always. hope the information provided on this program has been useful to you. Um, we certainly had a lot of fun last week with our um, first educators panel, and we have uh, two more folks who are going to be joining our educators panel next month. And, uh, geez, we got to get some callers on this program. Um, you know what? If I have to jury-rig some, I will, uh, or just invite some of our emailers to call in. But, um Yeah, we don't want to listen to my voice the entire program, even though you might find the content to be interesting. We need other voices on here, too. 
thanks again for listening and and um hey uh talk to you next week pre thanksgiving Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 